Today we're gathered together to celebrate Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks. Why is it called the Feast of Weeks? We'll find out, because you count seven weeks. That's right to get here. It's got other names, though. It's got five different names. Four come from the scripture. One comes from tradition. But the one from tradition is very important. First, it's called the Feast of Harvest. Turn to Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. The Feast of Harvest. This day of Shavuot is the one where in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended and indwelt the believers. And the church age began, which is described in the scriptures as being like a harvest period. It's called the Feast of Weeks in Exodus chapter 34, verse 22. So turn to Exodus 34, verse 22. The first one was the Feast of Harvest which was Exodus 23, verse 16. Second is Feast of Weeks, which is Exodus 34, verse 22. And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks. That's today. How do we observe it? Do we open an eye and look at it? No, we celebrate it. We, have ice cream. we remember it. We have ice cream. A wonderful way to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. It's also called the first fruits of the wheat harvest in Exodus 34:22. The very same verse. First fruits of the wheat harvest. Messiah was raised on first fruits, but that was the first fruits of the barley harvest. The barley harvest is the early harvest. That was the harvest of Israel. And that one was Exodus 34. 22, the very oh. same verse. Oh. Yep. So verse 22 says, You shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest. Do you remember when Messiah told the apostles, Don't say it's yet three months until the harvest, for I tell you now the field is white unto harvest? That's referring to the wheat harvest. So the church age is described in those words as the wheat harvest. Fourth name, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, Pentecost. Pentecost is from the Greek, and it just means 50 days. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, and we will come back to chapter 2 and explain that in a lot more detail shortly. But I want you to have those four names. The Feast of Harvest, Exodus 23, 16. The Feast of Weeks, Exodus 34, 22. Wait a minute. Then where do we get the name Shavuot? That's Hebrew word for weeks. Yeah. First fruits of the wheat harvest, Exodus 34, 22 also. Why does God give us two different names? Yes, ma'am. I also have in here festival of ingathering. Festival of ingathering is Sukkot in the fall. 
Yeah, you're reading from Exodus 34:22, which talks about all three pilgrim festivals. Okay. So only the Feast of Weeks and Feast of Wheat Harvest is this one. Okay. The fifth name is the first trump. The first trump. The Feast of Trumpets is called the last trump. So sometimes people ask, well, when's the first trump? It's at Shavuot. The first trumpet announces the betrothal of the bride. The last trumpet announces the marriage of the bride. So those prophecy teachers out there on the web that are saying the rapture is going to come at Pentecost have the wrong trumpet in mind. There are three trumpets in the scriptures that have names. The first trump, the last trump, and the shofar Hagadol. The first trump blows at Shavuot. The last trump at the Feast of Trumpets. Sometimes we call it Rosh Hashanah. And the third one, the Shofar Hagadol, blows at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the one that announces the Battle of Armageddon and Messiah's return. So those five names are all important, and we're going to study them all today. But yes, ma'am. The trump, does, is that the shofar? It's a shofar. There are two types of trumpet in the scriptures. There's a shofar and there's a silver trumpet. The first trump, last trump, and shofar hagadol are all shofar trumpets, which are the ram's horns. In the book of Revelation, there are seven trumpets that blow. They are silver trumpets. So they are not related. Yes, there is a difference. It's specified by God when each is to be blown and the purpose for which. Yep. Okay, there's an overriding theme. And that's the most important thing to gather from today. The theme of the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or Pentecost, whichever name you prefer to give it, is betrothal. God takes a bride. In the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 19, God betrothed Israel to himself. In Acts chapter 2, God betrothed the believers to himself by grafting them into Israel. There's a document that's required for betrothal. Who knows what it's called, Ellie? A ketubah. ketubah the word ketubah just means a writing. There must be a writing of the promises that the bridegroom makes to the bride and the bride makes to the bridegroom. The Torah is that ketubah. That is our promises as the bride to the bridegroom. And we will see that when we look at Exodus chapter 19 shortly. But let's begin our teaching on it today as we always do in Psalm chapter 40. Verse 7. If you miss Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, you can get very confused at what the Bible teaches. Psalm 40, verse 7 says, In the King James, Then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In the New King James, it says, Then I said, Behold, I come. 
In the, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. But what both are trying to get across is that every word in the Bible is pointing to the coming of Messiah. Messiah coming to shed his own blood to redeem fallen mankind. To bring us back to God spiritually and then to regather us into the kingdom physically. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the scripture explains how very important these feasts and festival days are that are called in the Hebrew the appointed times of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4. But concerning the times and the seasons, those Greek words refer to the feasts and the festivals of Leviticus 23, these appointed times of the Lord. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Why does Paul not need to write to and explain the feasts and festivals to the Thessalonians again? Because they're celebrating year in and year out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, let us keep the feast. He's teaching the Gentile believers to keep these seven appointed times of the Lord because they teach the first and second coming of Messiah. It says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Whenever I talk prophecy, that's what I hear back most often is, the Lord comes as a thief in the night, so there's nothing we can know about it. To which I go, you know a verse. Did you read the next one? Next one says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Labor pains referring to the tribulation period, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. How is it that one group knows about the second coming of the Lord and the first group doesn't? Because they understand the feasts and the festivals and their prophetic implications, absolutely. So let's go look at them. Where do we find those seven appointed times of the Lord? They're in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. We'll start out with verses 1 through 4 because they explain what they are as a group. Verse 1 says, and the Lord, that spelling of the word Lord there tells us that's the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, yod heh the one where God said in Exodus 3.14, I will be whom I will be. It's the name of God that connotes mercy. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, that word saying means what follows is a quote. Hebrew doesn't have quotation marks. This is the way you indicate the words that are coming out of the Lord's own lips. Speak to the children of Israel. That's a broader term than Israel. The children of Israel includes the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with the physical sons of Israel. And say to them, the feasts of the Lord, but the word feast is not right. The word feast in Hebrew is chag, C-H-A-G. This word is moedim. Word moedim means appointments, appointed times. So these appointed times of the Lord, they're not Jewish, they're not Israeli, 
They are the Lord's, which means they for, are for all people. Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Holy means set aside to God, and convocations means a gathering together to rehearse. So God says these seven appointed times will rehearse what Messiah does in his first coming and his second coming. Then he reiterates, these are my appointed times. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day, not a seventh, but the seventh day, is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. That phrase, holy convocation, means that the seventh day Sabbath foreshadows the millennial kingdom. It teaches us about the day of the Lord. Does the day of the Lord come in the first millennium? The second millennium? No, it's the seventh millennium. It says, you shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord and all your dwellings. <laughs> now, this particular appointed time of Shavuot begins in verse 15. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths, shall be completed. So if you count seven Sabbath days from the first one, that brings you to the Feast of Shavuot. What in verse 15 is the day after the Sabbath? That's the Feast of first fruits. So that's the first day of counting what's called the Omer. You count the 50 days from first fruits. So verse 16 says, count 50 days. What do you, how do you say 50 days in Greek? Pentecost. That's where it comes from. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. This is at Shavuot. So verse 16 says, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Somebody asked me before we begin, began today, So he says, what was the fifth name? The fifth name was feast, First Fruits. Uh, first, uh, let me think. First Trump. That was the fifth one. First Trump. Okay. Somebody asked before we started, why is my Jewish calendar wrong every year as to the date of Shavuot? And it's wrong every year on the date of First Fruits. And the answer to that is, if you look at the scripture, you start counting from the day after the Sabbath. That's at the Feast of First Fruits. And in verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. The day after a Sabbath is the first day of the week. And that's the way it was celebrated in Israel until the time of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. How many have heard the name Bar Kokhba? About the year 135 of the Common Era, Israel revolted against Rome for a second time. And the general leading the Israeli army, his name was Simon bar Kosaba, which means Simon the son of a liar. And Rabbi Akiva, who was the leading rabbi of the day, said, that name's not going to work for him. We're going to rename him Simon bar Kokhba, which means Simon the son of the star. Referring back to the star in Numbers chapter 20, 
three or whatever it was, 23 to 25, that was to announce the birth of Messiah. So Rabbi Akiva said, this leading general who's beating the army every which way we turn, they're beating the Romans badly, he is the Messiah. And when he declared Simon bar Kokhba to be the Messiah, the Messianic Jews said, we can't fight for a false Messiah. Yeshua is the Messiah. So they left the Jewish army. And the believing Jews went to Pella in Jordan. Jews didn't win another battle. And the non-Messianic Jews blamed the Messianic Jews for having departed. And that's why there's been such great animosity ever since. The non-believing Jews went to Yavne, down around the Gaza Strip, and got together. And that's where they formulated what's called today Rabbinic Judaism. And they did some things in their new rules and regulations to exclude Yeshua from possibilities of Messiah. And one was to change the date of first fruits and the date of Shavuot. Because everybody could see Messiah rose on first fruits and that the Holy Spirit came at Shavuot. So they changed the dates. And no longer do they fall on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. But they said, no, no, the scripture means count from the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a high Sabbath, count from the day after that. So now, the day after the first day of Unleavened Bread, that would exclude Messiah from being Yeshua. And then they said, well, um, the Feast of Weeks here is the first day after the Sabbath, yeah, God didn't mean Sabbath. He just meant week. So let's count seven weeks from the new day we established as the Feast of Weeks. I'm sorry, as the Feast of First Fruits. And then we'll have a Shavuot that doesn't fall on the first day of the week. And now Yeshua didn't fulfill them. And if he didn't fulfill them, then he's not the Messiah. So it was intentionally done to keep people from seeing Yeshua as the Messiah. So that's why your Jewish calendars, which are put out by non-Messianic sources, have them on different dates. It's to keep us from recognizing Yeshua. But since we do recognize Yeshua, let's keep reading. Verse 17, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They must be baked with leaven. What do you suppose those two loaves of leavened bread refer to? The Jew and Gentile were sinners. Leaven's a picture of sin. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, that lamb representing Messiah. One young bull, because God hasn't forgotten the golden calf incident, and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings and aroma made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. You shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. It's a rehearsal of something the Lord's going to do in his first or second coming. And which was it? It's a rehearsal of his first coming. 
The first coming begins with his death, then his burial, then his resurrection, but it doesn't conclude until Shavuot with the coming of the Holy Spirit. What did Messiah keep telling the disciples? Stay in Jerusalem until God sends the Holy Spirit. So the first coming of the Lord is taught by those first four festivals. Hold up four fingers on your left hand. Messiah died at Passover, was buried at unleavened bread, was raised at first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came at Shavuot. Did he fulfill these sort of? No, down to the very day, to the very hour. As Passover, wave that little pinky. The 14th of Nisan begins at sundown, but Passover doesn't start till 3 p.m. What time did Messiah die? 3 p.m. That's not a coincidence. For 1,500 years before Messiah was born, Israel rehearsed his death, burial, and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit in those first four appointed times. So let's keep reading in verse 21. You shall proclaim on the same day that it's a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. That's why it's a high Sabbath. Doesn't matter that it's not Saturday. God says it's a Sabbath anyway. And then it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations refers to all first four of those feasts. In God's eyes, that's two appointed times. The beginning of the first coming and the end of the first coming. His death, burial, and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then let's look at verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger and the Lord your God. And people say, wait a minute. That must be in the wrong chapter. It has nothing to do with the appointed times, but it has everything to do with the appointed time. Because the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost, begins what we call the church age. And that's what verse 22 is about. The church age is reaping in that white unto harvest that Messiah talked about in the New Testament. And it begins at the Feast of Weeks with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And notice the next thing after verse 22 is the Feast of Trumpets, which teaches the rapture and resurrection. So the Feast of Weeks starts the church age. The Feast of Trumpets ends the church age. With that, let's go back and look historically at the Feast of Weeks. Let's begin with Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. Verses 14 to 17. Exodus 23, 14 says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. We look at Leviticus 23 and we look at the seven appointed times, but God divides them into three groups. Verse 15 says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, all lumped together in one. It says, You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. 
Does that mean don't go up hungry? No, it means bring food to share with the poor so that everyone can celebrate from the richest to the poorest. So when we come together to celebrate, we should have food. Which is why we're having an ice cream social. Yeah. Okay. Verse 16. And the feast of harvest, that's today. The first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, that's in the, the, the Hebrew month of Tishrei, or September to October, that's the feast of Sukkot, which includes the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement, and the feast of tabernacles. When you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, that is when the harvest is over. The feast of trumpets sounds the rapture and the resurrection, and at that point, the harvest is coming to an end. So verse 17, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God, which means all Israel was required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts the three times. Think about it. When Messiah died, he was crucified. Where was all Israel? <coughs> Jerusalem to see it. When he rose from the grave, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. When the Holy Spirit came, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. And when the second coming comes, where will all Israel be? In Jerusalem to see it. Exodus 34. The reason I want to come to Exodus chapter 34 is by this point, Moses has destroyed the first set of tablets. And God has given him a second set of tablets. It is the renewed covenant. Exodus 34, verses 18 to 24. It says, the feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Again, that's Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the month in the appointed time of the month of Aviv. For in the month of Aviv you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. And every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you'll not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. I mean, you can't sacrifice a donkey. Why? It's unclean. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. No sacrificing children. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days may work be done, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In the plowing time and in a harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks, that's today, of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end, that's tabernacles. So again, God has the three appointed times that all the guys are required to go up to Jerusalem. Generally, they took the wives, the family, and everybody. But why aren't the women necessarily commanded to go? Sometimes they're at the time of having a child and they can't travel. But daddy can go. So verse 23. Three times in a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. So if Israel had always kept these appointed times of the Lord, 
they would never have gone into captivity. Wouldn't have happened. Numbers chapter 28. Numbers chapter 28 identifies the sacrifices that are required to be given. Verses 26 to 31. And every one of the sacrifices teaches us about Messiah. Numbers chapter 28 verses 26 to 31. Says also on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation, that's a gathering together to rehearse. You shall do no customary work that makes it a high Sabbath. You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. With their grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish. Why? Because they represent Messiah. Messiah was without spot or blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offering and his grain offerings. Now to Deuteronomy 16 where God tells us don't forget to include the non-Jews. God specifically lets us know that these are for all people, Jew or Gentile alike. Deuteronomy 16 starting in verse 9. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not just the Messianics, the Gentiles. Right. What did Yahweh do to all of the sacrifices? Because that, that wasn't possible anymore. They said, the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But God didn't really mean that. So we will replace the offerings of blood with prayer and good works. No scriptural basis, just because we said so. Set a precedent for the Catholics and the Protestants to do the same thing. Yeah. Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger. Who's the stranger? That's the Gentile and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. That's Jerusalem. There was a placard in the temple at Jerusalem that said Gentiles can't go beyond this point. Did God tell us to put that there? He did not. Quite the opposite. Verse 12. 
And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. And then if we go down in the same chapter, starting at verse 16, again, God's going to emphasize, remember the poor. When you bring food with you, bring some to share. So in verse 16, it says, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. That's Jerusalem. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover time. At the Feast of Weeks, that's today. At the Feast of Tabernacles, that's in the fall when we, oh, hope not to be here anymore. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. When preachers say that means bring money and put my offering plate, they're wrong. It means bring food to share so that everyone can rejoice and celebrate. Verse 17 says, Every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So if God didn't give you much, don't have to bring much. If God gave you a lot, bring a lot to share. Second Chronicles chapter 8 There was a lot that Solomon did wrong, but one thing Solomon did right was to keep the feasts and festivals, the appointed times of the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he built before the vestibule, that's the new temple, according to the daily rate, Offering according to the commandments of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. As long as Israel continued to keep these three appointed yearly feasts, they were not invaded. They did not go into captivity. It was only when they turned their back on God's commandments that calamity fell. Now, the Feast of Weeks talks about several different time periods in history. Let's go back and look at the first one in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We'll start in verse 1. Israel came out of Egypt on the first day of unleavened bread. They passed through the Red Sea at the Feast of First Fruits. And chapter 19, verse 1 says, In the third month after the children of Israel got out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. It's three days before the Feast of Shavuot. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, talking about the ten plagues and how he drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, what's that next word? If. Circle that word. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Here is God offering the betrothal to Israel. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So part of the ketubah is what will the bridegroom do for the bride? What does he promise? Special treasure above all people shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people, laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded them. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's an acceptance of the covenant. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Notice the commandments have not been given yet. And Israel just entered into the covenant with God. Covenant is a mutual set of promises. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you for a little while. Wait a minute, no, no. And believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people today, to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Washing the clothes includes the mikvah, the immersion, the baptism, if you will, in the water. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. When does this happen? Three days before Shavuot. What happens if you add three days? It brings you to Shavuot. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. That's the trumpet called the first trump. And that's why Shavuot has that fifth name of the first trump. I see a red question out here. Let's see. Yeah. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. What does it mean to sanctify? Set them apart. Make them holy. So there's things they're going to avoid. They're not going to touch their wives. They're going to be immersed in the baptism and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. Remember that. On the day of Shavuot, there are thunderings. That word thunderings in Hebrew is kolot, and it means voices. When God spoke, everyone heard it in their own language. In a mixed multitude, there were people from every nation of the world. And they all hear God speak in their own language. Why? What if God had just spoken in, oh, say, Swahili? Then most of the people there would have had an excuse. I, I couldn't understand what he said. What happens when he speaks in all the languages of the known world? No excuse. Yep. And lightnings, lightnings is fire coming down on the mountain. And a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Who heard the trumpet? They all did. 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. That's not what the Hebrew says, is it? What does it say? They stood under the mountain. As if God lifted the mountain off, and they're standing under it, hoping God doesn't drop the mountain. So the English doesn't quite convey that. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. His smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, it became louder and louder. How many of you ever blown a shofar? Does it get louder and louder and louder? No, it doesn't. We all run out of breath. But God blows in. It gets louder and louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Everyone there hears the voice of God themselves. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us. <laughs> Look at that naivety. But God, I told them not to. So they won't. Yeah, okay. Saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Okay, then he comes back up the mountain and here God speaks the Ten Commandments. And who hears him? Everyone. And God spoke all these words saying. What's the word saying? It's a quote, which means the words pass through the Lord's lips. Remember what Messiah said in Matthew 4.4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. What? Proceeds. Proceeding from the mouth of God. Number one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That word before means literally in my face. Don't do it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. I'm not going to read all ten. We're going to pick up at verse 18. God has spoken forth ten commandments. Verse 18, it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, that's the voices, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then he said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. In other words... Are there only ten commandments? No. When God has spoken ten, the people say, don't let God speak directly to us anymore. Let him speak to you, and you tell us, and we'll believe they came from God. 
So those two tablets of the Ten Commandments are never called the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. They're called the tablets of the testimony. Tablets of the testimony because you heard these with your own words and you asked God to speak the rest through Moses because we were so afraid. From there, let's go to prophecy. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 is about the day of the Lord and the tribulation period. What does that have to do with the appointed times of the Lord? Well, we shall see. Joel chapter 2. There's something that happens in Acts chapter 2 that comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit when? In those days. When you see the phrase in that day in the Bible, it's talking about the day of the Lord. When it says in those days, it starts with the first coming of Messiah and goes through the second coming. So if that is true, then we would expect the Holy Spirit to be poured out and people to start manifesting magnificent exploits in Acts chapter 2. And if we wait just a few minutes, we'll find out we do. But first, go to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, verse 3. Here God specifically makes the promise to Israel. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. What's water a picture of here? The Holy Spirit. And floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants. And my blessing on your offspring. And let's go to Jeremiah 31. To another prophecy that was to begin at the first coming of the Lord and continue through the second. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. What did Messiah say at the Last Supper? This cup is the blood of my what? New covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my law, my Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you notice this is the reoffer of the covenant from Exodus 19? The covenant is renewed or reissued. People are again invited, come, be part of the bride, part of the betrothal. And that's why the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, the law, is included in the new covenant. Because it is the ketubah, just as it was in Exodus 19, is the promises of the bride to the bridegroom. Let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24. Verse 49. Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And he told them when that happens, don't flee Jerusalem. Why would the apostles be tempted to flee Jerusalem? Scared that the Romans would crucify them too. But Messiah says, don't run. Verse 40 says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. And tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That power comes from the Holy Spirit. So Messiah said, remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you as God the Father has promised. Turn the page to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Why did they need to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came? The answer is in verse 8 here, Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit was to give them the power, the courage, to go out to a lost and dying world and proclaim the message of salvation by faith through Messiah. Was that message going to be quickly, easily, and readily received? No, they really needed power. They really needed the helper in order to do that. And Messiah said, wait until it comes. He didn't tell them when it would come, but they knew. Because what day would it come? What day did God come down upon the mountain with fire and with voices, etc.? Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, had fully come. Fully come meaning this is its ultimate fulfillment. Passover's ultimate fulfillment was the death of Messiah. Unleavened bread was fulfilled with the burial. First fruits of the barley harvest with the resurrection and the Feast of Weeks in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So this is its ultimate fulfillment. We will continue to celebrate it into eternity future. 
but it has been fully fulfilled now when this happens. They were all with one accord in one place. Please, no Honda jokes. I've done enough of those. I'm tired of them. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. What's the Hebrew word for wind? Ruach, which is the same word as spirit. As of a rushing mighty wind is the Holy Spirit coming. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Remember the fire came down on Mount Sinai. Here comes divided tongues of fire and one sat upon each of them. How many of you think they were a little bit afraid? Just like they were at Mount Sinai. Because what have they just studied? Being the Feast of Shavuot, they just studied Exodus 19. About how the mountain shook and fire came down upon it. And God spoke in all the languages of the world. And then here the wind blows and the place begins to shake. And divided tongues of fire comes down upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When it says to speak with other tongues, it doesn't mean that one spoke in Spanish and another in French. It means when Peter speaks, everyone hears them in their own language. They've just read, when did that happen before? At Mount Sinai, when God betrothed a bride. This is the new covenant. God is once more betrothing to himself a bride. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And people go, oh, that's ridiculous. No, it's Shavuot. They're commanded to come, they've come. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. And they were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? That's like people up in Boston saying, ain't all these Southerners hicks from Georgia? What they mean is they're uneducated. How can they possibly know how to speak in all these languages? The answer is they don't. Peter's going to speak Hebrew, and the Hebrew speakers hear Hebrew. The Greek speakers will hear Greek. The Latin speakers will hear Latin. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and what? Proselytes were not born Jews. They're converts, they're Gentile converts. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others said, oh, they're full of new wine. You know, when I was growing up in the Baptist church, my pastor said, new wine means grape juice. No alcohol in it. So they're saying, what, they had too much grape juice? <laughs> no, that's not what they're saying. The new wine was alcoholic. They're drunk as skunks, that's what they're saying. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Oh, he's a little angry. 
For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. What time's that? 9 a.m. My favorite little diner around here has a little sign up that says, you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. But they may have taken that from this. I don't know. But his point is, nobody's drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Hey, that's why we had to go back and look at Joel chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. What's it mean to prophesy? Speak forth the word of God. And Peter's going to do that in a big way right here. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. At this point, those people sitting there are starting to get a little frightened. Does this mean the world is about to come to an end? Is it time for the day of the Lord? That's not what Peter's saying, but he's saying we're now on the clock. The countdown has begun. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's true then, it's true now. The entire what we call the church age has this promise. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that comport with predestination? No, then predestination must go. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles. What kind of miracles did Yeshua do? Heal the lame, heal the blind, raise the dead, feed the 5,000, 4,000, etc. Wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. How could they all know? Because they come up to Jerusalem three times a year. Did the Lord ever heal in Jerusalem? Yes, he did. Did they see these miracles with their own eyes? Yes, they did. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Meaning, it was all God's plan. You have taken by lawless hands. Ooh, what did you just accuse him of? sin have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible he should be held by them so where were all these people when Messiah died in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. where was Messiah crucified in Jerusalem. in Jerusalem where was he raised in Jerusalem for David says concerning him I saw the Lord always before my face for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. That is the hope of the resurrection. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Is David calling himself the Holy One? No, he's referring to Messiah Yeshua. 
If you were not here, maybe you listened to the recording of, we went through the whole list of scriptures about the Holy One of Israel. They know very well when Peter says the Holy One, what he's calling Messiah. The only begotten Son of God, God from all eternity. Verse 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. How many of you have been and seen his tomb? Yeah, still there. You know what? It's not empty either. It's still there. Therefore, being a prophet, who was a prophet? David. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit in his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. They understood corruption set in after how many days? After three days. Which means Messiah was going to be raised on the third day, not the fourth. This Yeshua God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. What does he mean by all? He's looking around the room and said, you saw it, you saw it, you saw it. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, that's Psalm 110.1. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So what's Peter saying? God has poured out on him the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The non-Messianic Jewish interpretation of Psalm 110 is that it's talking about David. We learn right here, it's not talking about David. It's talking about Messiah, the descendant of David. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know as surely that God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, when he heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Could you imagine, just put yourself in their place for a moment. I was there. I screamed, crucify him, crucify him. And now I see the great sins I committed. Why don't they just take a lamb up to the temple? No, no. Sacrifices were for unintentional sins. When they cried, crucify him, crucify him, they meant it. That was not unintentional. So what can they do? So Peter answers. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That's each and every one of us is included in that definition. As many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Listen to this. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. At Mount Sinai, as Moses was receiving the tablets from God, Israel was building a golden calf. 
Or as Aaron put it, now nah, we threw in a gold and the calf jumped out. But no, Moses never believed that. Neither do I. They were worshiping the golden calf. And when Moses came down from the mountain, he threw those ten, two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The earth opened up, and how many people died? 3, Not 3,000. About 3,000. It's the exact same words. So that happened at Shavuot in the wilderness. This happens at Shavuot 1,500 years later. Isn't that something? One more thing I want to teach you about the Feast of Weeks before I teach you other things. Turn to Acts chapter 20. To understand the Bible, it is best to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. I watch a lot of theologians on TV who come across in the word, a word in the Bible and they grab a dictionary off the shelf to see what it means. That's not the best way. It's a way, but not the best way. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we have the only place in Scripture where the church meets on Sunday morning. Nah, no, it doesn't. It says no on the first day of the week, but back up to verse 6. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. What do you count after the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Seven Sabbaths to bring it to the Feast of Weeks. Verse 7 says in the Greek, now on one of the Sabbaths. It doesn't say first, it doesn't say day, and it doesn't say week. It says miaton sabaton. Now on one of the Sabbaths. One of what Sabbaths? the seven Sabbaths between Passover and the Feast of Weeks. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Was that a Sunday morning to Sunday night? It was not. They gathered on one of the Sabbaths because they always gather on Shabbat. And Paul just talked until they started falling out windows. Now, at each of the appointed times of the Lord, each of these festivals, there is a Megillah to be read. Megillah just means the whole thing, the whole scroll. Some of us are old enough to remember a cartoon from childhood called Megillah Gorilla. Yeah, it was written by Jewish people. They just thought the word Megillah sounded cool. The Megillah, the book that's to be read at Shavuot, is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a real story. Turn to the book of Ruth. It really happened, but it's also a parable. And what it's a parable of is that salvation would come to the Gentiles and they would be grafted into Israel. It began to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. The book of Ruth. Come on, Ruth. You're a little book. But you're still in there. Book of Ruth. Huh? Huh? 
guess I should have bookmarked. There we go. I know it's in there. It's the eighth book. Right, Ruth? It's the eighth book. How much time do we have? Plenty of time. Hang on to your seat. Speed reader. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. The judges ruled from the death of Moses, the first judge was Joshua, all the way to Samuel, after which Israel demanded a king. So for 400 years, they were in the days of the judges. When the judges ruled that there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The Jewish sages of old say it's not that they didn't have food, it's that they were tired of relatives trying to borrow food from them. So they flee to Moab so they don't have to share. I wasn't there, but that's what they say. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means my God is king. He represents Judaism when they're walking away from the Lord. Name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion, which means sickly and wasting away. How would you like to take your two sons to the IDF recruiting office and say, here is sickly and wasting away, they would like to enlist. But the point is that when they're walking away from God, out of God's favor, then the nation is sick. Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Well, remember, Moab is just across the Jordan River. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. Orpah means stiff-necked. Name of the other, Ruth. Ruth means friend. And these women's names correspond to their attitude toward the Jewish people and toward God. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Machlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. They're from Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? The house of bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with me, with the dead and with me. So she recognizes they are Moabitesses. Their country is Moab. That's where they grew up. That's where they're from. That's the the pagan area that they associate with, and she said, go back home. The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of her husband. In other words, you may get remarried. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. So both daughter-in-laws say, nah, we're not going to go back and stay at our old homes. We're going to go with you back to Israel. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Are you going to wait for me to have a kid and grow up and marry them? No, that's ridiculous. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, 
If I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Why does she say the hand of the Lord has gone out against her? Because that's what a woman considered herself when she was widowed and bereft of her children. She's left all alone. They consider that a judgment from God. Then he lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. In other words, to go home. Orpah's leaving. Okay, bye, Mom. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth will not let her go. Ruth represents the Gentile believer. The one who truly is grafted in like that wild olive tree into the natural tree. And she said, look, your stepsister, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Lord, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you from and me. That's an oath on the name of God. She said, I'm going with you. I'm turning away from my pagan peoples. I will be part of your people. I will worship your God. And going. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her, meaning stopped trying to persuade her to go back. Once she had taken an oath on the name of God, it would be wrong for Ruth to try and get for Naomi to try and get Ruth to break it. Verse 19, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. It's not very far from the Jordan River to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, it is Naomi. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, meaning with a husband and two children. And the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley season. At the beginning of barley season, when is that? That's first fruits, that's the time of Passover. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, his name was Boaz. Boaz is a nickname. His full name is Ibzan, I-B-Z-A-N. He's mentioned in the book of the Judges. Why would they then call him Boaz? Why do you call Richard Rick? Or Thomas Tom? Or Timothy Tim? We just have a tendency to give nicknames. Boaz in this story is going to picture Messiah. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and, hold, and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. 
Do you remember in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, it said to leave the gleanings for the strangers and the poor? So God commands that they cannot fully reap the field. They must leave some and let foreigners and poor glean from them. So she's going to take advantage of the commandment that God has given to find food for her and for for Naomi. So in this picture, Ruth is representing the Gentile believers and Ruth is representing Israel. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. What's that mean? He's a relative of her dead husband. A relative. Let that percolate for a minute. As in a kinsman. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. She's a hard worker, and he knows that she's gathering not just for herself, but also for Naomi his kinsman's widow. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Wait a minute, does she have a right under the commandments to do this? No, he's showing her special blessing. What does water represent? The Holy Spirit. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, is what he's saying here. So she fell on her face. That's not because she's clumsy. Bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Now you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. What do you mean by that? I'm not Jewish, but you're treating me the same. Verse 14, now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. That's far beyond what she is owed. He's doing this out of mercy and grace. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Why did she keep some back? to take to Naomi. 
And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Meaning, don't just let her glean from what's left, let her take from what you're harvesting. Ooh, that's really blessing. And let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's a lot of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. In other words, gives her of the parched grain, the breads, the vinegars. And her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi knows that Boaz is motivated by kindness to her as well as to this young woman. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relative of ours, a kinsman, one of our close relatives. To be a redeemer, a goel, the kinsman must be a near kinsman, right? That's what she's saying, is this man could redeem us if he wanted to. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. What does the barley harvest represent? The, uh, the gathering in of the Jews and the wheat harvest, the gathering in of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? What does that mean? Shall I not marry you off? Yeah, that's what it means. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. I don't know if you guys know it or not, but Boaz is much, much older than Ruth. Much older. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. That in verse 4 is the way the woman would let a man know, I would like you to ask me to marry you. So indicating her willingness to marry, if he's willing to marry her. Verse 5, and she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. In other words, she invites this Moabitess, who has cleaved to the Lord our God, to go and make known that she is willing to be the bride. 
So she went down to the threshing floor, verse 6, and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. After Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. What does it mean she came softly? What's that? Quietly. Quietly, yes, so as not to wake him. He's had a nice glass of wine. He's dead asleep, and she's being very quiet. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. <laughs> Doesn't that happen to you every day, guys? No, of course not. He said, who are you? Why doesn't he know? It's dark. They hadn't invented sweet streetlights yet. So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. That under your wing. Have you ever seen a Jewish wedding ceremony under the chuppah? At the end of this ceremony, the bridegroom takes the wing of his tallit and puts it over her shoulders. That's what it means by bringing her under the wing. And she becomes then under his protection. Verse 10, then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. See, he's lots older than her. And he says, you could have gone after the young men, but no, no, you chose to take an old man like me. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. She's a godly woman. Now, it's true that I'm a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. To be the kinsman redeemer, you must be the closest blood relative that has the ability and the willingness to redeem you. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, that is, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. That's an oath on the name of God. Lie down until morning. So for you and I, we each have relatives closer than Messiah to us in blood. So any relative closer to us in blood that has the ability and the willingness to redeem us could do that. How many of you have a relative closer than Messiah? No, of course not. But that's the point of the story. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He doesn't want gossip to start going around. She did nothing inappropriate, and they don't want people to assume she did. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. Six ephahs of barley. She gleaned all day long and got one ephah. She could barely carry this, I'm sure. She was a little girl. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then they told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. 
What must we give to the bride? The bride price. This is representative of the fact that he is presenting a bride price to Naomi. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Why does he go up to the gate and sit down there? That's where the judges sit. That's where the important people sit. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend. That's not actually what he called him, but that's okay. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of this city, that's called a minion, M-I-N-Y-A-N, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it. And I'm next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the kinsman that's nearer in blood than Elimelech says, I'll do it. Yeah, this is a problem. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Which may not jump off the page here, but that means, but you have to marry Ruth. And the first child born, if he marries Ruth, is considered the son of her dead husband. In other words, will inherit all the property. So it won't go to him and his other children, but to the child that's considered her first husband's child. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. That's what he means, is I'm afraid some of my property is going to get shunted off to her ex-husband's, her former husband, her late husband's line. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He doesn't really mean he can't. He means, I don't want to. To be the kinsman redeemer, you must have the ability and the willingness. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. The reason you did that is when you walked on the land, you got dirt on the shoe. When you transfer the shoe that has the dirt, that's how you showed you're transferring the land. So he takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz, says, you, you, go, you go take care of it. Therefore the close relatives said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Machon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Machon, I have acquired as my wife. To perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So their first child will be Machlon's child. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren. From his position at the gate. Your witnesses this day. 
And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women came and gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let me add something from the ancients. I wasn't there, can't swear to it. But they say Orpah, who went back to Moab, is the grandmother of Goliath, as Ruth is the grandmother of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nachshon, and Nachshon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. This is the Boaz that married Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. We've come to the end of the book, so we say what? Chazak, chazak, vanish, chazak. Be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. So you see the picture here. Naomi represents Israel. Ruth represents the Gentile believer who is grafted in. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. I will not leave you. And becomes betrothed, the bride of Boaz, who represents Messiah. And that Messiah, by taking the Gentile believer as a bride, does it so that through her he can bless Naomi. So that the gospel would remain alive to the time of the end when it would come back to Israel in a mighty way. There have always been Messianic Jews from the time of Messiah. But never like there are today. There are so many Messianic Jews in the world that it just thrills my heart. All right, we've come to the end of our time. Let us close with a word of prayer so we can get to our ice cream.